Hello, and welcome to the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement's podcast, Wonks at Work. I'm Craig Wilson, your host, a self-declared wonk, dad of two boys, native Arkansan, and I've been the health policy director at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement for more than a decade. On this show, we aim to demystify, boil down, and unwonk, if you will, complex topics so that you can understand how the healthcare system is working or not working for you. Here we are on our 33rd episode, and we have with us today someone whose expertise lies at the corner of health and criminal justice. Now, over the last decade, Arkansas has invested in crisis stabilization units, which are 16-bed facilities where individuals who are experiencing a crisis and who otherwise might be detained and put in jail can receive stabilizing treatment from a team of mental health professionals for up to 96 hours. And there are currently four crisis stabilization units across the state, and there are plans for a fifth in South Arkansas. And we know that on a case-by-case basis, the crisis stabilization units have shown some promise. But comprehensive study is needed to assess their true value as an alternative to jail or clinical intervention in other locations. At the same time, local officials are pushing state policymakers to build more prison space. Recently, Pulaski County Judge Barry Hyde, who we've had as a guest on this podcast, held a press conference indicating that the state penal system is about 1,900 inmates over capacity. He said that although the state had approved $75 million in funding for a new prison earlier this year, it would not be enough given the increasing crime rates. We know from our own analysis at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement that roughly a third of those who are booked into jail experience a serious mental illness. But there are a multitude of health issues faced by people in prisons and jails. They are disproportionately likely to have chronic health problems such as diabetes, high blood pressure, and HIV, as well as substance use problems. Unfortunately, health care in correctional facilities is often low quality and difficult to access, which ultimately has detrimental downstream effects for incarcerated people and the general public upon inmates' release. So, here to talk about these issues is Dr. Nick Zoller, who is a professor at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, College of Public Health, and founder and director of the Southern Public Health and Criminal Justice Research Center. He earned his bachelor's degree in microbiology and East Asian studies from Kansas University, after which he spent a year in China as a Fulbright scholar before going on to earn his doctorate in public health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Zoller, welcome to Walks at Work. I've been looking forward to this for some time. (laughs) Thank you very much, Craig. All right, now, before we get into the more serious stuff, I want to know what keeps you busy when you're not being Dr. Zoller. So, (laughs) well, uh, I've got two young boys, so that keeps me fairly busy. I'm with Uh, you there. I am (laughs) an avid hiker, so I love the outdoors, and and Arkansas is great for love of the outdoors. And great great weather now. Yeah, Yeah. I've been waiting for the fall. (laughs) 100 degrees in late September is Yeah, it's rough. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so yeah, love love to be out in nature. Um, I've been known to brew beer, so ah. that's another thing. And uh, I love to write also. So oh great, yeah, yeah. So favorite kind of beer to brew? Ooh, uh, well, I'm more of a uh, 
sort of brown ale yeah. stout kind of person. Uh, I know that a lot of folks around here love IPAs, but yeah. I, I'm not. I a feel fan. like yeah, people sometimes add too much hops, and then yeah. it overpowers it. So it's um, a little too bitter for little, me. Huh? Yeah, a little too much. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you there. And I, if that's going to turn off listeners, I apologize, but I'm, I'm with Dr. Zoller on that one. <laughs> all right, so I asked this of all of our wonky guests. Now, what would you say is your theme song? So, you know, it, it depends on the day, but today and in the spirit of since we're still in September and Recovery Month, National Recovery yeah. Month, uh, so I'm going to go with Stairway to Heaven, uh-huh. uh, and, and I'll go with that. I've been a lo- lifelong Led Zeppelin fan, but in addition, there's a line in Stairway to Heaven um, about, yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's always time to change the road you're on. Huh. So in the spirit of Recovery Month, I will, I will go with that as my today theme song. Yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. Good one, a nice classic vinyl there. All right, so um, first, if you would, just tell us a little bit about your research interests and what brought you to Arkansas. Well, uh, I started getting into this area of research and and this area meaning the sort of intersection, as you mentioned, between uh, public health and uh, correctional involvement, criminal justice system involvement. Uh, A number of years ago, started out, um, my training is in infectious diseases, so I started out uh, looking at HIV mm-hmm. and uh, risk factors for HIV infection uh, up in the Northeast, uh, a lot of injection drug use uh, in New England area, um, and increasingly uh, became more interested in the risk factors related to substance use uh, mm-hmm. that, that put people um, at risk for HIV infection. Um, and then I realized that you know the longer someone uses drugs, the more likely they are to come into contact with law enforcement, and some segment of the criminal justice population. So a lot of folks uh, had history of being involved in the system. Um, And so then I just began to look at uh, what were the primary drivers of incarceration uh, and found that substance use disorders uh, were a primary uh, driver. And so that sort of uh, led to my increased interest uh, in criminal justice research and really trying to explore and, and, and implement uh, interventions and policies to divert folks from the, the justice system, provide better support and care for people that are in the system, and then, of course, uh, support people transitioning out right. of the system and back into the community. Which is critical, yeah. So so we're lucky to have you in Arkansas, so what brought you here? Well, um, I'm originally from Oklahoma, Tol- grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and my wife was in the Kansas City area. So when leaving Rhode Island, uh, where I was last for about 10 years, um, we kind of tried to look for this part of the country uh-huh. so that we were within a day's drive of grandparents. Perfect. So that, that this was, fits the bill. Yeah. This fits the bill. So <laughs> Little Rock is within a day's drive of, the, of KC and, and within a, a short drive of Tulsa. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, now, I know that you're engaged in a study of the crisis stabilization units here in Arkansas. So what does that study entail, and how far along are you in that work? So that is a study uh, where we're really following people, about 200 folks, um, as they are leaving the crisis stabilization unit. 
<clears throat> excuse me. Um, and really, what we're focused on is healthcare ser- service utilization after folks leave. Mm. So the idea that uh, crisis stabilizations are an important intervention point, as you mentioned uh, in your opening, that individuals experiencing acute mental health crisis mm-hmm. in the community, uh, jails are probably one of the worst places right. for, for some of them to be. Um, and so it's an opportunity to divert people away from uh, correctional facilities um, and also from uh, psychiatric hospitalization because right. a lot of times people just need to be stabilized, uh, either uh, put you know titrate back up on whatever medications they were on, mm-hmm. and then connected to community services. So really, uh, even though this has been a very popular uh, program across the country, there is surprisingly little evidence or data uh, regarding their effectiveness really at connecting people into longer-term community-based mental health treatment. So really, that's what we're examining. So we're looking at people uh, who receive services from either the Sebastian County Crisis Stabilization Unit or the one in Pulaski County, and then we're following them for a year uh, after they leave and we're doing um, in-person follow-ups. We have a series of five follow-ups over the course of 12 months. Okay. And then we're also going to link people, uh, their uh, data from our study to claims data. So we want to look at both self-reported uh, healthcare utilization plus uh, looking at claims data to see, are they uh, in community-based mental health services? Um, are they being re-hospitalized? Do they come back to the CSU? And of course, um, are they incarcerated or reincarcerated? So, so you've taken a pretty hard look thus far, and and I I know that you were kind of involved in in the development of these as well. What could be done to improve access to the crisis stabilization units and to fill gaps in areas where there there aren't any? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. So I think that on the one hand, crisis stabilization units provide a really important service. Um, that being said, it's really one part in a bigger continuum. Yeah. So I think a lot of it is how do we get people, um, it will prevent people, I should say, from reaching crisis. Mm-hmm. And, and really that's more robust investment in community mental health treatment. Uh, and that's something that I feel like we really need to do a better job of here in the state. Um, and I think when we talk about utilization, um, obviously, you know, for... Uh, CSUs across the state is probably not enough, uh, especially when each of them has a much larger catchment area right. in multiple counties. So it still can be a transportation barrier. So, for example, if somebody is experiencing a crisis in a more rural area, there really aren't a lot of places for them to go. So I think having um, crisis stabilization units in more part of, parts of the state. The other part of it is really looking at our um, 911 call system. Mm and who is responding to mental health crises. So increasingly across the country, there are models where individuals other than law enforcement are actually responding to acute mental health crisis. So individuals, social workers, and like licensed clinical health professionals, uh, and also uh, street outreach workers who are able to respond to a mental health crisis. Uh, obviously, if there is a threat to safety, violence, so sure. of course you know, law enforcement is gonna be involved in those instances, but often um, there are ways that can really de-escalate a situation on the street uh, that don't necessarily involve law enforcement interaction. So 
really to have police law enforcement doing the work that they were trained to do and then having clinical uh, professionals do the work they're trained to do. So I think really understanding uh, that we need sort of a more hybrid approach mm -hmm. and that uh, the response to every 911 call, especially for a mental health crisis, doesn't always need to result in, okay, let's send the police as the, the frontline folks. Even yeah. even though I know we're, we're training, and rightfully so, uh, doing better training around um, crisis response among law enforcement across the state, and, and that's happening across the country, even still, you know, I think that uh, it's a lot to ask for uh, minimally trained police right. officers to respond to, to really complicated health needs of individuals who are experiencing uh, significant psychiatric distress. Sure, sure. Um, so the distress that we're seeing, <laughs> we know that there are elevated levels of violence and substance use and, and psychological distress even uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. What do you think is driving this trend? I think it's, you know, there's probably a number of things. It's hard to point to any one particular thing. I know that, um, you know, we hear a lot uh, in the media about, you know, this surge and crime and mm -hmm. violent crime. Um, our national reporting data is, is not very good uh, around this. So, you know, we really have a lag in terms of crime reporting. Mm -hmm. Uh, we really need to do a better job in terms of our uh, infrastructure to collect uh, data uh, in all facets of the criminal justice system, and, and crime is one of them. And clearly there has been uh, an increase in particular kinds of crime. Uh, I know there's been a big focus on gun violence. The city of Little Rock uh, is, is focused quite a bit on that in recent, uh, recent months and over the past couple of years. Um, you know, I think still the main drivers for a lot of this are similar to the drivers um, of crime and violence that, that we've always seen. And a lot of that relates to economic opportunity, mm -hmm. um, a lot relates to uh, adequate uh, behavioral health uh, services for people. And I think during the time of uh, a pandemic, when you have a tremendous degree of social isolation, mm -hmm. people not able to access the types of healthcare services that they normally would access, um, plus just lots of stress and anxiety and uncertainty, yeah. get, and coupled with an economic uh, situation where we see high inflation and mm -hmm. um, a lot of turmoil in our economy, all of this is sort of a constellation of, of risks that's kind of put us in this space where we're seeing... It just boils over. It, it yeah. boils over. But I think the fundamental drivers of this still um, really come down to, are we investing uh, in the basic needs of our population? And that really is um, not just public safety, but public health. And, and how do we keep people healthy and really uh, invest in, in people's ability to manage their behavioral health disorders, uh, and really achieve recovery and achieve wellness, not mm -hmm. just health, but wellness. Yeah, yeah, very important. Um, you've done some work in the opioid space as well, and, and we know that we've seen just outrageous numbers in terms of opioid-related deaths. How, if at all, are prisons and jails in Arkansas screening for opioid use disorder and ensuring treatment availability in those spaces? So I'd say there's there's a lot more we could be doing, but 
it's certainly not a simple answer. So it, I'm actually um, co-chairing a group for the Addiction Society, American Society of Addiction Medicine, and we're actually putting out guidance around um, screening and treatment in jail settings, mm. and we're going to do prisons after that. Um, and the first thing is to do universal screening, and a lot of facilities are not able to do that for a number of reasons. Um, th it really is depending on whether or not a facility has the capacity to do universal mm -hmm. screening, do they have the staffing that's necessary to do that? That doesn't need to be a nurse or a physician. It could even be EMT-level uh, individual. But at the very minimum, uh, all jail facilities need to be uh, really looking at withdrawal mm -hmm. um, for folks coming in, especially for opioids, um, and then really doing a screening and then comprehensive assessment. That's going to fall into the purview of who is the contracted healthcare provider right. in the facility. So that's a, another conversation. The other part of it with respect to opioids uh, is providing treatment. And we're not doing that in the state of Arkansas. We're not providing evidence-based treatment. The gold standard is medication for opioid use disorder, uh, buprenorphine, methadone, mm -hmm. uh, injectable naltrexone. Uh, we have some work with injectable naltrexone, but in our prisons and jails across the state, we're not offering treatment. Uh, and that is not consistent with national guidelines, um, clinical guidelines. And in fact, um, you know, there is discussion, ongoing discussion now in the Department of Justice of whether or not um, denying people access to medications during incarceration is a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah. So at some point, there is going to be um, a, a time when it's either facilities are going to be able to do this and figure this out, or they're going to be compelled to do so. Right. And so I would love to see us be ahead of the curve and right. really try to find uh, appropriate ways to implement screening and treatment uh, now before it, the mandates start coming right. down. <laughs> yeah, because you got to do it a lot faster and it's probably not as effective if right. you got a mandate on um, You mentioned your, your work in, in HIV and, and infectious consequences of, of substance use. Are there gaps in Arkansas policy that could prevent the spread of these diseases? Well, I think the most uh, significant one, there, there are multiple, but one of the more significant ones is syringe exchange yeah. programs. So we, uh, it's currently illegal in the state of Arkansas. Um, syringe exchange is one of the most widely studied harm reduction interventions out there. We have a mountain of evidence. Not only does it save lives through preventing uh, fatal uh, illnesses, um, not just you know, infectious diseases, endocarditis, uh, all sorts of things, um, and at a tremendous cost savings, I might add. Um, and at the same time, all of the evidence we have, all of the evidence is unequivocal. It does not promote increased drug use. Mm -hmm. So people have looked at this. This is sort of a mantra we hear a lot. We can't support syringe exchange because that's promoting and encouraging, encouraging drug use. There is absolutely zero evidence to support that, um, but there is overwhelming evidence that syringe programs quite literally save lives, just like naloxone saves right. lives by reversing uh, an opioid overdose event. So uh, to me, that's one of the biggest challenges, the uh, policy challenges we have to work on. The other thing, just really briefly, uh, you know, our paraphernalia laws also are challenging. Uh, fentanyl test strips, for example, mm -hmm. are illegal in the state of Arkansas. And for the similar reason, 
is uh, there is the misconception, I think, that that, again, encourages drug use. But if we're concerned about fentanyl and we're concerned about people not knowing what they're ingesting, fentanyl test strips is uh, a promising strategy so that people can test their drug supply and know whether or not fentanyl is in the drug supply. Particularly, we have a lot of methamphetamine use in, in the state. A lot of people are using methamphetamine that's contaminated with fentanyl. They have no idea. Yeah. So they're ingesting this and they're overdosing and in many cases dying uh, because they don't know what's in their in the drugs that they're using. So those are two things that are extraordinarily effective, um, but they require uh, very specific policy changes on the state level. Yeah, and I, you know, one of the things that uh, I think is a misplaced assumption is that most users of, of opioids are just using opioids, and that's certainly right. not, the, there's polysubstance use issues that people don't think about when they're when they're thinking about these types of interventions. I, I would say, yeah, that is the norm, uh, not the exception. Is that you know the people may have a so-called drug of choice, right. if you will, um, but if you are in the throes of an addiction, um, you will use whatever is available to you. Uh, you know, we just look at the example of methamphetamine. Um, you know, it's become the purity level has grown significantly in in recent years, but you know, it, it's a really um, very unpleasant substance to be using and to inject into the veins. Yeah. It does a tremendous amount of damage. So the extent that that people are compelled to use a drug that is so harmful and so caustic to their physical body mm-hmm. but continue to use is, is really illustrative of the fact that uh, addiction really is a, a, a brain disease. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... What are some of the studies that you individually or your or your colleagues at the at the research center are planning or would like to pursue? Because you've you've accomplished a lot in this space thus far. So, well, I I think you know really trying to a lot of what we're trying to do is uh, on one hand change the narrative around incarceration, uh, and that is what I mean by that is um, you know we hear very similar arguments about. Uh, you know, this is the way that uh, we need to respond to crime and to uh, substance use. Um, you know, it's it's gone back for decades, and you know, it, it's a popular thing to talk about the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people say, well, you know, it, things have changed. We don't really arrest people for possession. We don't do this. We don't do that. Uh, but the data suggests otherwise. You know, people are right. still getting arrested for possession charges of, of relatively small amounts of, of narcotics, of marijuana. Um, you know, I think understanding that um, addiction is a treatable illness um, and that uh, people who are in addiction, in the throes of addiction, um, are you know, can't shouldn't be seen as these you know hardened criminals who are, are just out to destroy society. Um, you know, I think that also we can't incarcerate our way out of uh, whatever social ills we have, mm-hmm. and and it's a lot more complicated than than people sometimes acknowledge. So you you know it's it has nothing to do with uh, whether or not someone should take personal responsibility for their actions. Of course, all of us need to be accountable. And take responsibility, but when you look at some of the circumstances in which people live and grow up, uh, when we allow children to be tortured, 
uh, as children, and when we have among the highest levels of adverse child experiences in right. the nation, um, these are children who are growing up and experiencing horrific things, and then we wonder why they commit horrific acts. So it, it's not as simple as you do the crime, you do the time. There are a lot of complicated social dynamics here, uh, and really trying to disentangle some of that and, and try to figure out, okay, how do we support people on the front end to keep them out of this system mm-hmm. um, and then support them as they're transitioning out? And, and I think it's also worth noting that we have constructed a system that you know, we can, you know, there's, there's no way to sugarcoat it. It is uh, racially unjust. It is systemically oppressive, mm-hmm. and and it continues to be like that. And so, we have to take a hard look at who are we actually locking up, and why are we doing this? Um, and you know, just to say we should just continue as we have done, um, it, you know, it 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 just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and and the other thing is, it, you know, we can't point to well, we don't have any other options. That that's that's just not true. We have other options that are effective tools. We just have to have the political will and the social will to actually implement them. Right, right. And fund them. And fund them. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So my final question is, um, what is something that the folks listening to this podcast, what would you want them to know about your work and about the criminal justice system more generally? I think you partially answered a little bit of that in the previous question. Yeah, I I would say that, um, you know, again, if we're really serious about uh, the root causes of crime and and some of the other social ills um, that that we're really grappling with, and we have been for for a number of years, we really need to take a hard look at the underlying causes and really look at where we're investing our resources. Yeah. So if you look at the state of Arkansas and looking at some of our indicators, uh, as I mentioned, you know, adverse child experiences, you look at educational attainment, you look at poverty, childhood poverty, um, systemic racism, all of these things really come together uh, and overlap. Um, and I think if we have a system that we want to call justice, uh, then it has to operate as such. When you have certain people being punished uh, disproportionately for the same crimes, or when you are arresting people and incarcerating certain people um, at a much higher rate, Mm -hmm. then I think we have to take a step back and say, what is is the purpose this system is serving? Um, And that's going to mean all of us are going to have to take a hard look at our own culpability and and continuing to propagate a system that is truly unjust. And, you know, the other part of this is, Instead of investing in building more prisons, as you mentioned before, you know, really taking those investments and saying, how do we build uh, a better system where we don't have child poverty or food insecurity, or we really have uh, equitable opportunity for education and employment? We have a livable wage. We have health care for everybody. These affordable are sort of housing, affordable yeah, all housing. All, all of these things are so important, and these are the investments we need to make. And if we don't, we're just going to get more of the same. Yeah. And, and that really is going to be increasing um, challenges with crime uh, and issues with public safety and sort of addiction and mental illness, all of these things. Um, so we have the power to really make an impact 
it's really our decision to do so. Dr. Zoller, this has been a great conversation. I've looked forward to it for a while, and thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Wonks at Work. You can listen to our bi-weekly podcast on our website, achi.net. A special thanks to the Bobby L. Roberts Library of Arkansas History and Art, which is a part of the Central Arkansas Library System for allowing us to use their studio to record. If you have any topics you would like for us to consider, please email us at achi at achi.net. As a reminder, the views, information, and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The podcast does not constitute medical, legal, or other professional advice or services. We hope you've enjoyed our latest episode. And again, thanks for listening.